Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world, why they care, what they can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Ranan Productions, which is me. So if you like how we sound and are thinking about starting a podcast, please reach out to me. I am easy to find. Pod for Good can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. So if you enjoy what we do here, please make sure to subscribe and share this episode and all episodes on social media. I am your chief philanthropod and class clown for justice, point zero zero one, Jesse Lorch. And I am your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller, and class clown for justice. Should have thought of something earlier. In today's episode, we're talking to uh, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, the executive director and founder of the Terrence Crutcher Foundation. We talked to Dr. Crutcher about her journey building the Terrence Crutcher Foundation its mission, and she goads Jesse and I into joining their community walk instead of just talking about it this time. We are very excited to have uh, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher on the podcast today. Tiffany, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Jesse and Chris? I am good. I'm good. I'm still unpacking my office, but we're getting there, so I feel better about it now. Awesome. Well, I hear that uh, we've been trying to connect for almost a year now, so I'm, I'm really true. excited to be here. <laughs> it's true. Listen, you're you and your foundation are very busy, and I was like, whenever, whenever she's got time, it's fine. <laughs> and you know, just get the world kept interfering with that, which you know happens. So, yep. but so let's start with let's start with some fun questions. Usually, we save this for the end, and I realize we should do this earlier. So, uh. What's one of your favorite things to do in Tulsa other than fighting for, you know, social justice and equity? I absolutely love spending time with my family. Uh, my dad has 11 sisters and brothers. And so we have a pretty big family. I have lots of cousins and now I have 10 nieces and nephews and uh, just had my first grandnephew, my niece, uh, had a baby who's one now, and so we love getting together and frying fish, cooking, talking, gossiping, drinking wine. And so that's one of my favorite things to do, but I also love uh, really great cuisine, food. So I'm a food junkie, so I love to go and, you know, stake out really great restaurants, holes in the walls, things of that nature. What was the most recent hole in the wall that you found? You know what? This was really a new spot called, I think, is Sidebar off of Cherry Street. A mm-hmm. uh, really great view um, and of Tulsa. Really nice drinks and appetizers. Not quite a hole in the wall, sort of upscale, but it was really nice. Mm-hmm. Like a hole in the ceiling, I guess, Sidecar would be <laughs> called. Hole in, a hole in the sky. Yes. Like- <laughs> We've been there, Chris, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. nice. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Fairly new. But for some reason, they had the fire burning and it was so hot and I just (laughs) didn't get it. Like, why do you have the fire? They had that during the day we went too. And I was like, it's hot over here. It's too warm for that. It is so hot. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sweating. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it just doesn't, like, the off switch, like, maybe it takes way too long to turn back on. So they just leave it on. I'm not sure what the logic is there. Uh, Maybe it's a fire code thing. Yeah. They're like, listen, if you're going to have fire, it has to be on all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so you mentioned that you enjoy cooking. So, uh, 
like I, I watch a lot of TV and film, and I'm not a huge reality show fan. But the ones I do seem to watch are mostly cooking competition related type shows. Do you enjoy yeah. the cooking competition type shows? You know what? I love Hell's Kitchen. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That guy is like intense. Yeah, and um, you know there was one show I think they had juniors or youth cooking that I, I recently saw, and so yeah, I I watch a little bit of. That when I do find time to watch TV, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Chef Ramsay's a he's a fun watch, you know, and you know it's usually he's a little crazy, but it's nice when you get those little moments where it seems like he's trying to be nice to people. He's a little he's a little milder on the kids' versions of the shows, though, for sure. I would hope yeah, so. Yeah, pe- people like that, like he and Simon Cow, they're really just mushy on the inside. They're really nice guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. I was able to get to one of his restaurants in Las Vegas oh, uh, nice. a while back. Yep. I feel like if yeah. Ratatouille has taught us anything, it's that those people usually have a very um, sensitive heart that you know somehow got <laughs> messed with as a child, and this is how they <laughs> handle it as adults. <laughs> Um, right. I don't know if I would uh, break it down or go that deep. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, in our interviews, we talk to a lot of people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and other places who are working to make the you know the world a better place. And I find a lot of them don't necessarily have things they like to do when they have downtime because they're usually so exhausted they just like sleep or see family. And and so I'm always interested what they do when when they really want to like try to relax and do an activity sort of separate from their sort of work life. And um, so like, I like to play video games still as an adult, Um, not like hard video games. Like I'm playing the Lego star Wars at the moment, which is not hard at all. Yeah. It does make the movies actually more entertaining in some ways. I can definitely relate to those folks. I, you know, I, you know, my sort of default is family because I'm so busy and, you know, I unintentionally uh, tend to neglect them. And so when I do have uh, some downtime, I default to family and, you know, my girlfriends, my sorority sisters. And I love uh, a good glass of wine and great conversation. So were a lot of these friends, I know you moved back here in the last, you know, seven-ish years. Uh, were a lot of these friends, uh, friends you had from before or friends that you made after moving back? Uh, friends that I've had from before, I have a pretty tight-knit group of girlfriends, and we've been friends uh, since college, and we've traveled together, and you know, we pledged our sorority together. But I've also uh, made a lot of new friends coming back home. I was in Montgomery, Alabama for close to 20 years, and you know, I have a whole life there, and a group of friends, and family that I made there. And so have friends all over the country, but Tulsa's home, um, you know, born and bred here, went to some of the best schools, I think, Emerson, Carver Junior High and Booker T. Washington, all magnet schools. They were really great um, back then. So I'm a magnet school chick and, uh, <laughs> you know, got a good, good education. I mean, what's funny is like both of those cities have a very, uh, very distinct, Com- complicated, complicated uh, racial histories. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oklahoma and Alabama. I'm not sure how that happened, but it happened and <laughs> found myself fighting on the front lines in Alabama 
and of course back home in Tulsa, but you know, distinct but also very significant histories for sure as it relates to African Americans. How do you find the energy to to keep fighting, you know, th- this fight? You know, that's a great question. I I asked myself that question when I was on vacation last week and and it has to be something supernatural. It has to be because I'm exhausted. Like I'm exhausted right now. It's 5:30 and I want to go have a glass of wine. Um <laughs> but somehow I mustered up enough strength to talk to to Jesse and you Chris because I know we've been waiting for this for over a year and I said I have to do this but I do believe um you know my family is a family of faith and um you know when there's a fire burning in your belly you have to put it out you know and you find the energy and you find the strength and I do believe that it's supernatural and it's my ancestors that carry me through every single day. And I do take it one day at a time. You know, I, I try not to 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 sort of harp on, you know, next month or mm-hmm. next year. But with everything that my family has been through and in our community, I definitely have to take it one day at a time because each day brings about new challenges, obstacles, opposition battles. Um, you know, every day there's something new. And, uh, you know, we're dizzy most days trying to figure out, are we going to fight this education battle? Or are we going to fight uh, what's happening, you know, with hyper-policing? Are we going to fight at the state house with some of these egregious bills that our governor is passing? And so we've found ourselves on the front lines of a lot of different issues uh, that all overlap tremendously. I think that's the that's the most interesting part of watching other people sort of begin their sort of journey of learning about the injustices of society is the moment they realize all the different issues are tied together, right? Usually they'll start, they'll come in via one specific issue and then they'll learn more about it and then they'll realize, oh, it's also tied into this thing and it's also tied into this thing and it's also tied into this thing. And that's right. It's, and what's, that's both good and troubling because then you're like, well, what do I do now? Like, where do I start? What do I keep doing? Um, because again, they're all, and you don't want to be just responding to what hateful people are doing, right? You want to stick to a plan you had to try to work on something, but especially in Oklahoma, it's hard. They keep throwing new things at us and daily, daily. And and what I found out, Jesse, is that, you know, a lot of times we pick and choose daily uh, what we decide to be outraged about when in fact any injustice deserves our outrage, especially if it's a result of systemic racism. And nine times out of 10, most times, you know, we're dealing with these oppressive systems uh, that's affecting, you know, uh, every sector in our, our society, you know, whether it's food insecurity or under-resourced schools, uh, the criminal legal system here in Tulsa, hyper-policing, infrastructure, homelessness. I mean, we're dealing with all of these issues, women's rights now, critical race theory. I can go on and on and on and on and on. And so, um, but what I found out is that people who could truly help us and, and use their voices uh, like white allies, we pick and choose. Sometimes what I've witnessed and observed, you know, um, you know what we decide to be outraged about. And 
Um, and we've worked in silos just far too long. And, you know, my goal right now is to try to figure out how we sort of uh, converge all of these issues in a more coordinated effort or fashion, uh, if you will. And, you know, how do we stop working in silos, but really sort of build what we call community power to truly have impact to disrupt um, these these brick walls that we're up against. So you've said hyper-policing a couple of times now, and that that's not a new term to me, but I've, I'm, no, I'm noticing the emphasis on it. Can you define what would you mean by hyper-policing? Too much policing, <laughs> too many police, uh, you know, police officers that, that, that come into the communities or that are unleashed onto our communities when they're not really needed. Um, racially biased policing. Uh, that's, that's what hyper-policing is, you know, and, and a lot of times I've heard them sort of conflate it with community policing. Oh, we're just hanging out with the community. No, if you don't need to be there because use of force is simply police officers showing up in this military gear and in uniform when they don't need to be. That is excessive, <laughs> you know, just the presence of cops in communities. And there's something called procedural justice. And that simply fairness, police me the same way you po- police someone on the south side of town. And uh, that doesn't happen. I've witnessed it. Uh, I've, I've seen it growing up uh, in North Tulsa. And I believe that our law enforcement officers don't need to be the sole responders to every single issue. We don't need police officers responding to mental health crises. We don't, you know, let's go find a therapist. Let's go find a social worker. Let's go find someone who's trained to deal with people in crises. And so I believe that we are failing our police officers. Um, by not uh, actually by forcing them to respond to every single social service issue. And, you know, nine times out of 10, if you're African-American and you encounter a police officer while in the middle of a crisis, you won't live. We've seen it over and over and over again, but I've seen firefighters respond and de-escalate with no weapon with no force. And so we have to figure out what's going on. There's definitely a breakdown somewhere, um, but there's too many police officers um, sort of plaguing, I would say, certain portions of this city. And statistics show that more law enforcement officers don't decrease crime. Community-based solutions do investing in the community, investing in infrastructure, investing in education. That is what drives down crime. And so we have to figure out how to reallocate or reshift um, some funding if we truly want to envision a community that's safe for all Tulsans. We kind of jumped in a little bit. Can you tell us about your foundation and kind of what the purpose and goals of the foundation for any of our listeners that don't know about it? Yeah, absolutely. We jumped way in quick, didn't we, Chris? <laughs> we did. We did. It happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Well, um, the Terrence Crutcher Foundation was started uh, back in 2017. Uh, I think it will be five years uh, next month. We started one year to the date and time that Terrence was killed. My twin brother is the namesake of the foundation. Terrence was shot and killed unarmed with his hands in the air by a police officer uh, by the name of Betty Jo Shelby. She was a police officer at the time, and it was so tragic and unfortunate. She was actually headed from the Gilcrease Division to a domestic violence call and happened to see Terrence's vehicle stalled in the road, and she aborted the domestic violence call, which I would have thought would, would have been more of a priority And she went to go check out why this vehicle was stalled in the road. And Terrence had just left Tulsa Community College, started his first day of class, music appreciation. He was so excited um, to sort of just start fresh because Terrence was dealing with drug addiction. You know, um, some years back, he was robbed and his right eye was beat out and he got really, really depressed. And I think he turned to to drugs to try to cope and to try to deal with losing, you know, uh, one of his body parts, his eye. And, and um, so he turned to drugs. And I think after leaving Tulsa Community College, he got sad, you know, because the class was canceled and he had no idea that the class was canceled due to low enrollment. And he was looking for his class and two professors saw him looking indoors, trying to find his class. And they sat down with him. They they had him log into the commu- computer, his account, and it showed that, hey, this class is canceled for the summer. And he simply asked them, what do I do now? What am I going to do with my books? And They told him to come back Monday and they would figure it all out. They said they gave him a big hug. Nothing was wrong. And so he decided to go and meet my parents at church. They were having a a music workshop. And I'm not sure what happened from the time he left Tulsa Community College to trying to get to Antioch Baptist Church for the music workshop. But he was in crisis. And instead of receiving the help that he needed, he received a bullet. And not only that, Jesse, several officers fled to the scene. Helicopters were looming. Police officers in the helicopter said, oh, that looks like a bad dude. Not sure what a bad dude looks like that far up in the air. But all I could suspect is that they saw the color of his skin. And as I reflect back on the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 and with Terrence and I being descendants of a survivor, my great-grandmother who's no longer living, I can't help but just reflect on the oral historical accounts that I've heard about mobs fleeing across the railroad tracks into Greenwood and killing Black men with their hands in the air. I can't help but reflect on B.C. Franklin stating in one of his his memoirs, stating that airplanes were hovering around Greenwood, dropping bombs. The parallels are so stark. Mobs of white rioters 
and now mobs of police officers. The same state-sanctioned violence. The same police department that deputized Klansmen and white civilians. It's the same police department that existed and that exists today that killed Terrence Crutcher with his hands in the air. And guess what? No one rendered first aid to Terrence. They trampled over him to go check on Betty Jo Shelby, who was a trained EMT who had about $10,000 worth of medical equipment in her car. They told her, don't touch him. The Klan told the EMS workers not to touch the people in Greenwood either, or they would be shot too. And there's been no justice for my great-grandmother's community. And there's been no justice for my family and for Terrence and our community for what happened to us, for the vicarious trauma that our community had to endure. Terrence is killing unearthed a century of racial tension in this city. And so fast forward, Betty Shelby was indicted. Strange. For the first time in 100 years, a police officer was indicted. For the first time in Tulsa's history, a police officer was indicted. We thought we were making progress. We thought our voices mattered. We thought they were hearing us. And she went to trial. And those jurors deliberated nine hours. I'm like, wow, somebody is back there fighting for us, Jesse. Nine hours? They're fighting for us. And we waited and we waited and we didn't want to leave because they told us we had 10 minutes to get back to the courtroom. And finally, the verdict was in. And I saw jurors crying. And I'm like, what is wrong? Why are they crying? And the jury foreman penned a letter to the verdict, something no one had ever seen before. And the letter stated, and I'm paraphrasing, that we don't believe that she's blameless and she should never be a parole officer again. But because of the way the laws are written, we have to render this verdict. And they let her go. And my body went numb. And it was like another shot was fired. And my mother, who is no longer with us, who recently died of COVID-19, was that quiet, calm that kind of kept us all grounded. She had this quiet strength. And we had to get up, walk out of that courtroom, pass hundreds of cameras, and go into the elevator to go up to the DA's quarters on the eighth floor. And we had to maintain our dignity and our composure. And when those elevator doors closed, my mom collapsed into the wall and started screaming at the top of her lungs, they killed my baby. They killed my son. She killed my son. And there was a community upstairs, broken community leaders, lawyers. I mean, black men crying. And my father, Reverend Crutcher, had to get everybody together. And we had to stand strong on the faith that he had taught us about and that we had sung about all of our lives. He got everybody together and said, let's pray. That's all I know to do is just pray. And at that point, I was still numb because I, I, I thought it was a dream because I had this great expectancy in my heart that we were going to get justice. I mean, all of the elements were there. There was absolutely no justification 
for her to pull that trigger was a bad shoot, and everyone knows it. And he was not reaching in a window for a gun. They found gospel CDs. She had already cleared the vehicle of weapons. It was in the police report. And then I just lost it. She killed my brother. But I had to go out there and face America and react. They wanted to hear the family's reaction. And that's when I made the declaration, Chris, that I would not rest until I transformed, not reformed, but transformed policing, not just in the city of Tulsa, not just in the state of Oklahoma, but across this country. And I made that promise and I had to figure out how to turn pain into purpose. And I said, I'm going to start the Terrence Crutcher Foundation. They're going to hear his name over and over and over again. We're not going anywhere. And that's what we did. And so we started the foundation, launched it uh, on September 16th, 2017. We officially launched at the very moment we rung a bell, did a moment of silence. And that's when the fight began. And we have grown exponentially. I mean, it's 20, what is this, 2022? And I went from having a voluntary army to now a full-fledged team of individuals who are passionate and dedicated uh, to the fight. They're fighting for justice and liberation. The mission of the Terrence Crutcher Foundation is to simply create just and liberated communities free from racial violence and harm. And we do that through advancing policy, strengthening communities, and right there in the center is honoring the legacy of our ancestors. And there's so much that goes into all of those pillars. I won't bore you. You can go to the website, but I promise you, you see us. They want us to go away just like they wanted for us to stop talking about the massacre. There was a conspiracy of silence. It was erased from the history books. And now they want us to go away. And those stories are interconnected. And so that's a little bit about how we got started. Uh, I was I was helping the Black Wall Street Times live stream a, um, it wasn't like a church service, even though it took place in a church, but it was right before um, the Tulsa judge announced whether the lawsuit uh, could go forward uh, against the city for the race massacre. And I just remember hearing all the speakers talk and it just, what amazed me was how hopeful everybody sounded, even though the history of America would lead you to believe no hope exists. Justice will never be served. Every, every one of the speakers, including you, were hopeful about the next day. And like, as a Jewish person, I found that to be incredible. I was like, if this was, if this was reversed and this was a, uh, uh, some sort of Jewish lawsuit against a city that attacked Jews, like all the speeches would have been, one, snarky about spite and about how like there's nothing else we can do other than fight for this or we're going to keep fighting for this but not in a sort of a hopeful way and a there's nothing else we can do here and i found the i found the hopeful message no matter what happened the next day a better way of, of viewing that because working for a better world is always going to be lots of small small victories with yes. large um hopelessness thrown into the middle by the this systemic racism that is American society. Sorry, CRT people. It's true. Uh, <laughs> not that not that any people who actually know 
who get mad about CRT would ever listen to this podcast, but, um, or know what CRT actually was. That's right. (laughs) I mean, as a historian, it confuses me. I'm like, listen, you study American history and it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear what America, like, like there's, there, there are the dreams of America and then there are the facts of America and the facts of America say something very clear. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Like where the uh, almost all U.S. police forces were born from. Yep. There's a reason there's a racist history there. Yeah. I mean, mean, law enforcement is the outgrowth of slavery. You know, I mean, it's just simple. Yeah. It's the outgrowth of slavery. And so we cannot deny it. Facts are facts. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, I like the Tulsa Rain Massacre obviously comes up in our conversations a lot and. You know, I learned about it from my dad who worked at the metro campus of TCC. So I learned about it like in middle school, even though it wasn't on school. Like I knew about it when it was still called the Tulsa Race Riot. I think Chris learned about it in college. And there was, there was, there was one reference to it in high school. It was in one Mm -hmm. of our, I think maybe our U.S. history class or something. They had to teach us Oklahoma history. And there was like, like one paragraph in Oklahoma history where there were like, uh, there was a. Tulsa race riot and people on both sides were killed and it was bad. And that was about the extent of it. I've heard that before people on both sides, you know what? I I don't remember it in, in Oklahoma history. And, you know, based on your history teacher, they get to cherry pick and teach what they want, but we did learn about the trail of tears. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that, that, you know, um, some of the, that we were slaves on the trail of tears. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that part. So, you know, I'm constantly learning about my very own history and about where I come from. And I'm, you know, I kick myself a lot because I didn't sit down at my great grandmother's feet because she was afraid to talk about it. I feel like I was robbed of, of, of those stories because of the internalized trauma and the grief mm-hmm. and the fear and they told them, don't say anything. When she actually shared it with my father, uh, she whispered. That's how afraid she was to talk about it. When I talk to some of the survivors now, the three that we know of, Mother Fletcher, Viola Fletcher, for those of you who don't know, who's 108 right now, and Mother Lessie Benningfield Randall, who's 107. She'll be 108 in November. You know, when they talk about their stories, you see Mother Randall getting a little nervous. And sometimes she looks afraid and they don't want to talk about it and they want peace. They, 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 they want unity. They don't want that to happen again. You know, and so I just didn't learn about it. And I, I'm, I'm really upset and I wish I would have sat at my great grandmother's feet before she died back in 90, um, I think it was 94 or maybe a little bit before that. So, I mean, it's such a over, overwhelming problem, but since most of our listeners are Tulsa based, we'll start here. What is, if you were, if like the, if the Tulsa police department and the city of Tulsa came to you and they're like, we will change three things. What would those three things be? I think one of the top things, because I have to, you know, it's personal for me, and so many 
of us. I mean, this is common. It's it's just really not a black or a white thing, but so many people are dealing with mental illness, mental health issues. And so I would say that I would love for them to reallocate some of the police budget dollars into mental health. That that's number 1. I think we need more funding for mental health and for crisis response. And I would like for them not to be the answer. Not to be the answer. So that's 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 one thing that you ask for three things. Sure. I mean if if if, if I said three but like I was my original question was going to just be the one thing. So that one works. Uh but if, yeah, you, if, yeah. if you have two others, we're happy to hear them. But like, I want to, I want to just talk about that issue briefly because I'm trying to figure sure. out what is the, what is the problem from instituting that as a thing. And I'm always, I'm always interested in the narratives that people use when they describe something, right? Like, you know, we, uh, we, I'm talking to Chris and I here as, you know, moderate liberal progressives, I'm always we're always bad at branding things, right? And so, like, saying defund the police was a terrible idea because that's not, like, like yes, it'd be great if we could do that. But what we really want to do is reallocate some of the money. I know, reallocate the police is less catchy. Yeah. It's like, why can't, like, maybe the winning argument is maybe police departments hire social workers? Like, what if they are, like, instead of having to take money away, because people don't like taking money away from police officers for some reason, um, what if they were just part of it? Or would that just, would that, would those people just then also be in the problem that is the sort of racist history of police departments? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, anybody that, that, that sort of embedded into, to that culture, I mean, it's just um, a racist culture, you know, it is just based on um, the, the history and the foundation of it. I think um, that, this whole system, which is what it is, needs to be totally transformed. And so you can embed social workers, caseworkers, whomever, but they will still be indoctrinated into um, uh, a white supremacist culture. I mean, that's just what it is. And so I believe that you're right. Uh, words matter. Uh, I've, you've never heard me use the word defund the police. Um but when you look at the police budget, when you look at the grants that they're applying for, I mean, they're applying for grants for ballistic shields. Like, are you getting ready to go into a war zone? You know, I'm thinking when I see you come into my community with ballistic shields and military gear, you're thinking that I'm an enemy target. My community, we're not enemies. We are human. And so do we need money for that or should we invest that money and set our police officers up for success? Mm -hmm. That's that's the language. We need to set our officers up for success and not put them in these situations that they're not trained to deal with. Who would go against that? I think that's fair. And so let's use some of the money for good to build up the communities because if my community, you know, if North Tulsa wins, we all win. Tulsa wins. And so we can make it be whatever it is that we want and deem Dr. Tiffany Crutcher as anti-police or anti-cop. That is so 
Not true. I come from a family of law enforcement officers. My uncle uh, was with TPD for 30 years. My father, my uncles, my cousins are army veterans. My dad went to Vietnam and Korea. My cousin, West, West Point, all of my uncles, we have fought for this country and this city, and we love our city. But I refuse to keep participating in my own degradation. I'm not going to do it. And so something has to change. And I've spoken with police officers and they don't want to have to go and, 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 and try to deal with social service issues. They've told mm-hmm. me themselves that there are a lot of bad apples. And what do you do with bad apples? You pluck them out of the bunch because it taints the bunch and they are a disgrace and they make good cops look bad. Because I love everything about the police officer's code of ethics and what they swear to. If you just look it up and read it, it stands for what I stand for. Fairness, dignity. Look it up and read it. I love it. But the facts are, is that they go out there, a lot of these cops, and they act antithetical to what they swear to every single day. And those are the cops that I'm talking about. I'm anti-bad cop. I'm Mm anti-injustice. I'm anti-racism. I'm anti-hate. I'm anti-bigotry. And you heard it right here on this podcast. I'm not anti-cop. And everybody else who has morals and values and who cares about the sanctity of life should feel the same way that I do. And I just won't support bad. And when I leave this earth, I want to stand on the right side of history. And I want to be a force for good. And I want for somebody to say she fought for me and she fought for humanity. Well, and I think you you bring up a great point that over the years, more and more, we ask cops to do more and more. Don't give them the right training or resources to do it anyways. When your training says to arrest people, ticket people, handcuff people, or shoot people, if those are your only real training and options, then that's how you're going to solve every problem. And so if, if you don't have people that are trained in crisis management, then they're going to use the tools they have. And the tools they have do not fix crisis management. And so it does. It makes sense to parse out that budget and create groups that can specialize. It doesn't mean you don't have a cop for crisis management. Maybe, maybe a cop comes along with the crisis management team to help out if things go sideways, but you don't use that as the first option. That's a last resort, you know, and I know that some cities have, have implemented some of the changes that you've talked about. And from the outside, it seems like they've been successful cities that have added crisis management teams have drastically reduced, uh, issue instances of police violence and have, uh, increased the um, success rate of those encounters. So we know it works. Absolutely. And, and I'll say this at the Terrence Crutcher Foundation, uh, under our pillar of strengthening communities, we're working on uh, some community safety initiatives and trying to find alternatives to policing. And so we partnered with the Restorative Justice Institute of Oklahoma 
And we did a, a community safety pilot um, to figure out how we deal with conflict within our community without having to resort to um, calling the police. How can we deal with the person who caused the harm and uh, the person who was harmed and figure out how we can work that out? You know, because it stems from some type of a root cause. It may be, you know, economics or food insecurity or a mental health issue, but we're trying to find alternatives and ways to deal uh, with community issues within the community. We believe that whenever there's a community issue, it requires a community response. And so we've uh, started what we call restorative justice circles, healing circles. Uh, We've put together a group of Black mental health professionals and counselors We call them the Tulsa Black Mental Health Alliance. I'm so excited about it. And what we're going to be doing here in the very near future is training up community members on how to deal with crises within their neighborhoods so we don't have to call the police. We're going to create our own apps and we're going to get to know our neighbors. And we're also walking the streets every single month. We've launched community walks and we're knocking doors and we're asking our neighbors What issues matter the most to you? We're doing more listening, less prescribing, less talking. And we're we're, we're asking them, what do you care about? And we bring those issues back and we figure out what the common threads are. And we advocate around those issues. And and so community-based solutions, I promise you, can fix the problem. And, And we got OPERA dollars, American Rescue Plan Act dollars. And the U.S. Treasury handed down some guidance and said that we want for these dollars to have a racial equity lens. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity to build up your communities, to try to dig yourselves up out of the hole from the pandemic. And guess what? These dollars are going to police officers. And so we had to advocate to fight to get some of these dollars into the hands of of these grassroots organizations who are out here every single day, you know, serving our unhoused friends, serving our youth, serving the community. And we had to fight for that. And so uh, we're advocating on every front. But again, we're not anti-police. We just want to set our police officers up for success. And we want them to be able to go out there and fight some of the things they need to fight and and do it in a fair way. Mm -hmm. Do it with fairness. Successful policing. That's what we should call it. Like successful policing. I like that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You you can have that. I like that. You can have that. That's yours. Um, Yeah. (laughs) One of the um, more, I would say kind of insidious um, versions of, of um, systemic racism, just because it's, people just can't seem to wrap their head around it being racist is, and you mentioned a little bit earlier infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. one of Jesse's hot buttons is uh, the IDL, especially the, the 240, the Northern leg there. Um, I-244. So we've talked to a few different people here and there about their advocacy to have that removed or turned into something else. So I'm curious if, you're involved in that as at all and and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I've definitely been in on several conversations and I mean, 
my thoughts are that it needs to be removed. I mean, it's simple. I mean, we know that that highway was the second massacre, uh, for lack of a better term. It destroyed our community yet again. And it was by design. So it may not have been physical violence, but it was policy violence, urban removal or renewal or whatever you call it, blight, eminent domain, racist policies, redlining. And they put that highway right in the middle of Greenwood yet again with no exits to make sure that this community didn't thrive again like we did 100 years ago. And so I do believe that it needs to be removed. And we need to figure out as a community, you know, what we want to see in Greenwood. And we can't allow, we have to stop allowing people who's not from this community to dictate and prescribe what we need. What you do for us without us, you do to us. Greg Robinson taught me that quote. Not sure who gets the credit for it. But what you do to us or for us, without us, you do to us. And that is a lesson that needs to be learned. Include the community who's impacted the most. America's first political uh, slogan was literally the same premise, which was taxation without representation. Things you do, right, that you prescribe for me without asking me. You're doing it to me. And That's right. I feel like we can get behind that if we just like <laughs> we're able to actually sit down and talk with people about it instead of whatever it is we do now because uh, I don't know it's, really, it's 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 hard to gauge how community engagement works these days now that we also have to be worried about monkeypox and other things uh, on top of whatever <laughs> new COVID strand we have. Um, I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm like monkeypox, yeah. really? Like really? I'm Come just, on. <sighs> It, it just it sounds all. it sounds fake, right? It, it's, it does it's sound hard fake. to yeah. It's hard to be scared of it when it sounds like something from like a cartoon or something, yeah. like yeah. a fake disease that somebody would come up with. Yeah, yeah. Like chickenpox, but only monkeys get it. Like you know, um, <laughs> it's confusing. So I don't know if you want to go back to the two other things um, that you could, in my the- my hypothetical situation, <laughs> ask the city or the state for. I will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would love for um, there to be an office of the independent monitor. I would love for there to be oversight Mm -hmm. and accountability. And that's one of the things that I've been fighting for um, since day one. Mm -hmm. And actually, people before me, Eric Harris was killed. There's been so many people. uh, I just took on the baton. And Terrence was just a part of that number, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, Office of the Independent Monitor, and that has been <laughs> one of the hardest things to get. And I think, you know, everyone needs accountability. You know, social workers, healthcare workers, and now you have people with guns who can take life. And there's yeah. no accountability. You get the police yourself. Let me tell you what would have happened if there would have been an oversight entity at the time that Terrence was killed, they turned witnesses away. A monitor would have said, no, 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 no. We have to interview these witnesses. Mm -hmm. They allowed Betty Shelby to watch the video before she gave her first perception or reaction, knee-jerk reaction to what happened. They let her get her story right. 
a monitor would have said, no, 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 no. Let me bring you in and get your story. What just happened here? Yeah. And I can go on and on and on. And so it's not saying, hey, I gotcha. It's just another set of eyes because I know things can get chaotic at Mm -hmm. homicide scenes because it was a homicide and we can miss some things, you know? And so it's necessary. Mm -hmm. It's necessary. We've seen the flawed data. We've seen the flawed police reports and the falsified reports. And a monitor would say, no, 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 no. You know, this needs attention. This officer needs discipline. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think that's one thing that I'm asking for. And and there are state statutes that sort of, and, and collective bargaining agreements and the fraternal order of police who's right there at the intersection of all of this being one of the biggest barriers to transformation. And so we have to deal with all of those things in order to get true accountability. And if you're not doing anything wrong, you should welcome it mm-hmm. with open arms. It's only going to keep you safe and keep the community safe. Um, and so that's, that's another thing. And um, I would say number three, I would love for qualified immunity to be abolished. It is a legal shield that protects rogue cops. Mm-hmm. and government officials too. And so I think we need to abolish this legal doctrine that it gives police officers legal the, the authority to commit legal murder or to commit unjust crimes on its citizens. And then I have to just add this fourth thing. I want justice for my brother and my family. Mm-hmm. We still haven't been through a civil trial. We're just waiting and waiting. And my mom went to her grave fighting for her son and didn't get to see justice. And now my dad, he'll be 75 this year. And Terrence's kids are growing and they're growing up without their dad. And Terrence had his first grandson. Little DJ will never meet his grandfather. I want justice. I want some of these policies to be changed. I want to make sure that what happened to Terrence doesn't happen to his son, Terrence Jr., who is the spitting image of him. He's my twin reincarnated, and he just turned double digits this year, 10. He's getting older, and he's asking questions. But we deserve justice. What's, what's holding up the civil trial? I don't know. Federal judges can move when they want to move. It's just sitting on a desk. No lawyer, but I know it's just sitting I know it's just sitting, so I believe that the burden of proof is a lot lower, and I believe that, you know, some of the things that didn't come out in the criminal trial will come out in the civil trial, but as time goes by, witnesses have moved away, police officers are moving away and retiring. Like, come on, give us a little bit of solace. Who can, who can we pressure on that front? <laughs> Tell me who to yell at. Yeah, well, I'll get back with you, Jesse. I'll talk to my legal team and see what the strategy will be this year. All right. (laughs) As we come up on the anniversary. Six years. We're coming up on the six-year anniversary next month. Yep. If if your legal team needs someone to just yell discriminately at people, like, I'm I'm available. (laughs) 
Because, <laughs> like, yeah, delay, like, again, justice delayed is, is justice denied. Justice and, denied, absolutely. Mm, like, I mean, of, from all the different sort of legal things that have happened with cops who have killed people since, the, just since then, right? Some of those trials have come and gone already. And the fact that we can't get the civil trial going, because obviously it's being, it's being delayed on purpose, right? Um, ignoring something is something Amer- white Americans are great at. And yeah. so, you know, anyway, that, that doubly angers me now. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I was, it didn't occur to me that there hadn't been a civil trial until you said it. I assumed it had already happened. And yeah. oh, all right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't want to delay you from getting your deserved glass of wine for today. So <laughs> um, to wrap up here, Tell our listeners what is the best way they can support the Terrence Crutcher Foundation, both monetarily and in person. Well, in person, I have to just throw this out. Shameless plug on, I think it's August 13th. Check the calendar. It should be a Saturday. We will have another round of community walks. I would love for you all to come out and be my special guest and walk with me. You can go to Terrence Crutcher Foundation dot org forward slash events i believe or just go to the website terrencecrutcherfoundation.org go to events and sign up for community walks and uh let them know that dr tiffany crutcher invited you because we have this competition going on within the office as to who can get the most people to show up and walk with us um last last month we had one of our largest walks yet i mean Elected officials came, community leaders, people from all over. I mean, it was just amazing to go out into to the community. You get a Terrence Crutcher Foundation t-shirt. We feed you breakfast and lunch. We give you a short training. We come back. We debrief. We talk about the issues. But most importantly, we get to learn about our neighbors and the community and the issues that are most important to them and to hear our neighbors say no one's ever asked how we feel or what we think or what we want. Thank you. And I think what moves me more than anything is that people know my family out in this community. They talk about your mom taught me in school. Your dad taught me piano. Um, Thank you all. I mean, that moves me more than anything to hear those memories of my parents who served this community for decades, they've been pillars in this community. And so I would love for people to come out and, hey, I'm trying to be the the, the top person on the board and, and walk with us on August the 13th. And then, of course, you know, um, any donation will help us continue this work because the fight for for justice and liberation definitely isn't free. And we've created a generational vision for the type of community we want to see, not just in this moment, but for little Terrence's children and my my great nephew. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an amazing. I really appreciate you know your time and being so open and vulnerable to tell your story and and as you said, turn that pain into purpose and and making a difference in this community. Yeah, I appreciate you all and the questions in this platform so so listeners can know what's going on and, and really hear from the horse's mouth because, you know, people only 
you know, know what they hear and see, mm-hmm. but sometimes you got to just sit down and have a conversation. Absolutely. I promise you, I don't bite. I love my community. <laughs> I love my city and I will fight to make sure that she can be the best that she can be. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber-rich. Tallgrass begs to differ! Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan's exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Thank you all for listening to our episode with Dr. Crutcher. I know that was a heavier one than normal, and that's saying something for us because we've had some heavy episodes. But please go check out the Terrence Crutcher Foundation website. Sign up for their community walk. Chris and I will be there on their next one, which will be August 13th. As I say every time, Pod for Good is on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and occasionally TikTok. So please make sure to follow and like all of our silly comments and audiograms that we make for these episodes. And please, somebody, other than my nephew, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually does help people find us. As always, Broken Arrow, get your shit together. Tulsa, get it done. And let's all beware the monkeypox. Monkeypox.